0: All right, if you want to, you can uh, go ahead and open up to Ephesians 1 and we will jump in there. So, when I was a kid, my grandpa and grandma had this really cool tradition that we would take part in every year at Christmas time. And that is that every time, every year, after we would all gather together on open-up presents, my grandpa would go back into his bedroom and he would pull out this gigantic metal bowl. And he would come and he'd bring that that metal bowl out into the living room and that gigantic metal bowl was full to the brim and over the brim with pennies. And, And then he would take each one of the grandkids, there were 15 of us, and we would go in orders from, like, youngest to oldest. And, and the thing was, like, every one of us had one chance to dig into the penny bowl and try and grab as many pennies as we could out of there while he would hold a bag open, and then we would dump the pennies into, the, into that bag. And whatever pennies we were able to get out and into the bag, we got to keep those pennies. Um, And when you're a kid, this is really cool. This is like, I've never seen this much money in my entire life. Look at all, look at all of these pennies. It was this really amazing thing. And so um, every year we would get ready for this. And, and over time you learn certain strategies, right? As you go. So I remember like the year I realized, Hey, he doesn't necessarily only let us keep the ones that get into the bag, like anything that falls outside of the bowl, he lets us have. And so you know, I would jump in and just kind of like push a bunch of pennies out as I was reaching in to pull everything up, right? Until Papa, that's Papa started getting wise to that and started kind of changing the rules. No, the pennies got to get in the bag in order for you to get them. And so then you had to kind of develop new techniques and new strategies to do this. So I've got one for you. I'm just going to share. If you ever have a chance to dig into a large bowl of pennies, <laughs> and if Papa ever tells you you get to keep those pennies whenever you do it, okay, the trick is to utilize the forearms, okay? Because you can only get so many pennies like in your hands, right? But forearms, if you can get your forearms down in there, I mean, pennies for days stacked up on top of those <laughs> things, right? The thing with the forearms though is then you, you then gotta get the right technique to be able to do the dump, right? To get it the right way because they'll just, they'll just go everywhere. So it, it takes work, okay? So don't, don't be too discouraged if you only get about $4 worth of pennies the first time. It's a rookie mistake, all right? Um, <laughs> We veterans knew, knew how to bring in the big bucks, $11, $12 at a scoop, all right? Yeah, so it was, it was good times. Um, but here's, here's the really cool thing about that. One of my favorite memories about doing the, the, the Penny Bowl tradition with my grandparents is, is whenever the little cousins would get up there. Because when you get up there and you're three or four or five years old, um, you're terrible at this game, all right, first of all. You've got these little tiny bitty hands, And they don't even know to put their fingers together to make scoops, right? They're just kind of grabbing it like that. And so pennies are just going everywhere. They come away with like 32 pennies by the time they're done, right? So what they would do is they would reach in there and they would try and get them. And as they'd pull them up and they would be ready to put them in the bag, every time Papa would say, no, 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 that's not enough. And he'd have them put their hands back in it. He would hand the bag to somebody else. And he would have them put their hands back in the bowl. And then he would reach his big hands underneath theirs and he would scoop up the pennies with them so that not just what they could carry, but more than they could even hold, were able to make it into that bag for them. I always remember that. I always thought that was really cool. That's the image I want you to have in your mind tonight as we read through Ephesians 1, the first half of it. Because that's the idea that Paul is trying to communicate to us. This is a text about a God who gives more than we can hold more blessings to us than we can even get our hands around. And then when there's so much that we can't get our hands all around it, he sticks his own big hands in there and pulls up even more for us. That's what Paul is getting after in this text. So let's open it up the way Scott described. We'll, we'll kind of cover original audience, timeless principles, and then uh, application today, how we live it out today. So um, We'll divide each night when we study the book, we'll divide each night into two halves. We'll spend about 20 minutes walking through the text itself, doing that first part, looking at what it meant, what the author's intended meaning was, and as we do that, we'll start to pull out some little kind of truths, some little things, nuggets for us to catch some principles, and then we'll take a little break. You can get some hot cocoa, you can go to the bathroom, whatever you got to do, for a couple minutes, and then we'll come back, and then we'll begin to apply it to our lives. So that's how we're going to do this each night. So, Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 1, uh, the first couple of verses actually says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer of this book is, he says right at the beginning, Paul, that is the famous apostle Paul, though that is not his original name. For the majority of his life, for the first two-thirds of his life, uh, he went by the name Saul, Saul of Tarsus. If you were with us last year, we talked a little bit about this guy, because that was our, our book last year, Romans, was through this, and so, uh, or, or was written by Paul. And So we talked a little bit about him. But Saul was a contemporary of Jesus. So he was born uh, probably about 10 years after Jesus. First in Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And then he moved down at some point when he was young into Jerusalem. Probably specifically so he could study under this very famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And, and that alone meant that, that Saul was a pretty big deal. Uh, you stand in a room full of Jewish people back then, and you mention that you studied under Gamaliel, and people's eyes would get wide, and their mouths would drop a little bit. The Gamaliel in Jerusalem, you studied under that guy? It meant that he was someone. It meant that he was important, that he was a rising star amongst his specific sect of people, this group called the Pharisees. And he was a man who was zealous for the Jewish law and for the the old traditions of the Father, which means he was not a fan when this brand new rabbi from Galilee came down and started preaching these new truths. Actually, they weren't new truths, but they were running in contradiction with many of the old Jewish traditions. This man named Jesus Saul did not like him. In fact, Saul hated him and, and everything he stood for. He saw him as ruining the Judaism, the religion of our fathers. And, and he became a passionate opponent, a passionate leader of the anti-Christianity movement, um, devoted himself to hunting down Christians so that he could imprison them for believing in Jesus. And he actually uh, he's got, has the distinction of overseeing the, the very first execution of the very first Christian martyr. Saul was in charge of that. This is what he was about. And then one day he got this special commission from the high priest to go up north into Syria to the town of Damascus because he heard that some Christians had started to live up there, that it had begun to spread up there. And so he wanted to go there and drag them back to prison as well. But on his way there he had this really crazy moment where the resurrected Jesus came and appeared to him there on the road and everything from that moment on changed for him. He goes from Christianity's greatest enemy around that time to becoming its greatest champion. It was um, his greatest desire to begin to spread Christianity, to spread the gospel of Jesus to uh, the world around him. And so that's what he did. And he's aware of just how crazy this is. If you read some of his writings, some of the things he says, he calls himself in one place the chief of sinners. That is, there is no one who has done more, worse things than I have. There is no one who is less deserving of Jesus, let alone of being able to go and talk about him to people, let alone of being his ambassador. But for some reason, because of the amazing, and this is one of Paul's favorite words, grace of God, he set me apart to get to do this. It's insane. And, and he would travel around and he would start these churches. He would plant churches. One of the towns that he planted one in was in the large metropolitan city of Ephesus, which sat in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey today. Um, so he planted this church in Ephesus. He spent about two and a half years there, actually, getting to know the people really well and preaching and teaching. Um, and this letter is a letter that he wrote later on in life when he was imprisoned in Rome for his preaching and his teaching. He's in prison in Rome, and he's writing these letters out to different churches. And so he writes this letter, we think, to Ephesus and to all the surrounding cities around it for for a few different reasons. It's what's called, and you don't need to remember this, it's what's called an encyclical letter, which means it's not just to one specific group, but it's actually meant to be kind of passed around to different groups, to different people. And so uh, he wrote this letter to them probably about A.D. 62. This would have been about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He wrote these letters, uh, wrote this letter to them, and he says, I, Paul, am writing to you, the faithful saints of Ephesus. Now, usually when we use the word saint, we mean somebody who's really, really spiritual or really, really holy. That's not what the word means in the Bible. Uh, the, the Greek word, that's what all the New Testament is written in, is Greek. The Greek word literally means holy ones. And every time it's used, it's generally translated saints but it's used to refer to anyone who is a Christian. Everyone who follows Jesus is now a holy one. And so he's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, and, and they're not holy, as we'll see, because they're really good people. And you, if you're a Christian, you would be a saint, but you're not a saint because you're extra spiritual. It's got nothing to do with your spirituality. It's got nothing to do with you being awesome. It's got nothing to do with you being good, which is what we'll see here in the next few verses. Look at verse 3 real quick. He says, This blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. That verse right there is the theme verse of everything else we're going to read. Blessed, praise be to God, because he has given us every spiritual blessing we could receive in Jesus. Now, Here's what you need to know, and this is pretty crazy. As I said, the New Testament was written in Greek. That was the common language of uh, of the world at that time, and so he's writing this in Greek. I want you to look there at your Bible or scroll down on your phone from verse 3 to verse 14. Okay, Look at all of that. In the Greek, that entire section that you're looking at is one sentence. One sentence. Long run on sentence all together. What we're about to see is Paul trying to describe what God has done for us in Jesus and getting so passionate and excited about it. It's it's almost like he's tripping over himself, trying to get all the words out, trying to explain it fully. And so in some ways, I'm not going to do justice to it because we're going to be stopping to kind of explain as we go. But it, it would be better said if I could just read it all with like one breath, just real quick. That's kind of the idea behind it, the excitement that comes behind it. Verses four through six say this. For he chose us, so he says, praise God who gave us every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the Beloved One. So, uh, a couple things to notice. If you want to be able to understand Scripture, one of the simple little practices that you can do when you're reading a text is look for words that are repeated or phrases that are repeated. When you can sketch those and see a pattern beginning to form, it gives you an idea of the larger theme and the larger direction that they're trying to go with it. So the one that you're going to see, oh, you're going to see several in here, but the the main one you're going to see over and over and over again is this this phrase, in Christ. It is a favorite of Paul, but especially in the book of Ephesians, Paul loves to use this idea in Christ, and, and it's very, very huge for him because to Paul, And I would say this is true universally. Everything important in the universe happens in those two words. The purpose of all the scriptures is pointing us to those two words. The pinnacle of human history, everything that we are and that we have, is summed up in these two words in Christ. And you'll see that take place as we read through these next several verses. Now, he talks about this, that in Christ we were chosen to be holy and blameless. We were predestined to be sons and daughters of God. Don't get too hung up on that word predestined. A lot of people do. A lot of people want to get into giant debates about that idea. Does that mean then that God has chosen, he's predestined who was going to be saved, who was going to be a Christian, and who wasn't? I don't believe so. The word predestined literally means. This is according to my Greek professor back in college, which you know I didn't listen to a lot, but I do. I do remember a little bits. Okay, according to my Greek professor, that Greek word for predestined literally means to set the boundaries beforehand to set the boundaries ahead of time. So when Paul talks about being, uh, people being predestined to be adopted as God's children, I don't think he's saying that he predestined this person and this person, but not that person, not, not that person, no. What, what he's saying is that God decided beforehand, long ago, that he wanted a people that would be his. He decided long ago that he was going to adopt people into his family as his own children, and he set the parameters long ago for how that would happen in Christ. But that happens not by people being really good. That happens not by people being really important. It happens by their faith in Jesus Christ who died for them to bring them into this family. Don't get hung up on predestined. If you get hung up on anything, get hung up on this, that Jesus came because God wanted you as his son. That Jesus came because God wanted you as his daughter. Did you see those words good pleasure in there? You weren't forced upon God. He didn't take you in reluctantly. It's not like you were the last person left in the kickball line and God rolled his eyes and go, okay, fine, you're on my team. No, 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 no. He wanted you. Enough that he would send his own son to make that happen. Get hung up on that if you're going to get hung up on anything. Look at verse 7. In him, there it is again, in Christ. In him we have redemption, here's another word, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now you've seen that word twice come up, the word grace. There And as I said, that's a big one to Paul. The word at its most basic level means gift or an unmerited, an undeserved gift. But when Paul uses it, he likes to specifically be talking about this idea. When he says God's grace, he's talking about God's loving kindness and his favor directed towards people who do not deserve it. That would be me. That would be Paul. And that would be you. And you'll notice that both times when Paul uses this word, the first time he uses it in verse 6, he says that God lavished his grace on us. The second time he says that he has the riches of grace that he richly poured out on us. The idea there is of this abundance that you cannot exhaust so whenever we would get the penny bowl out at Christmas time, my grandpa would get it, and the first, there were 15 of us, right? And so as big as that penny bowl is, eventually it's going to start running low on pennies. So it stinks to be cousin number 15. There's no pennies left in the bowl, right? So you're sitting there watching it, and you watch the penny bowl start to go down, and you start thinking, dude, when I'm, I, was, I was third oldest, which meant I'm 12th, I'm right? So I'm, I'm 12th in line, man. There's going to be no pennies left when I get there. It doesn't matter what kind of forearm strategy I've got worked out here. I'm not going to get any pennies. But the cool thing is, is every time that bowl starts to go, uh, get low, Papa would go back to his bedroom and he'd pull out another bag of pennies. I don't know where he kept all these bags of pennies. <laughs> He's like the Monopoly man, right? And he would come out here with all these pennies and he would dump another giant bag in there and it would overflow again. You could not run out of them at my Papa's house. And this is what Paul is getting at. There is nothing you can do, nothing you will ever do that will exhaust the riches of God's grace. He's got an endless supply of it. And he is glad to pour it out on us. Verse 9 says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth, here it is again, in him. Um, So he says, he made known to us the mystery. Now, when we use the word mystery today, we mean something you can't figure out. Something too complicated. So uh, that's a mystery. I will never really know. That's not the way the Bible uses that word. The Greek word is mysterion. You can see how we, we came up with that word mystery there, pretty close. Mysterion, and it means something that was hidden, but now is revealed. Something that we would not have figured out on our own, but God has now chosen, chosen to make that secret known to us. And the secret is this, that God has been working for all time and his ultimate plan in the universe is to take all the broken pieces of the universe and put it all back together again in Jesus. To make everything that's wrong right again to make all of his creation that has torn itself away from him, to redeem it back through Jesus and to place all of it under the rule of King Jesus. This is the mystery and it has now been revealed to us. Verse 11. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Uh, So you may have noticed this shift in the pronouns. He's been using the whole time the first person, we. We, we, we. God has done this for we, for us, for those. And, and then he makes this shift at the end in verse 13. In him, you also. See, Paul is writing to these Ephesians who happen to be Gentiles. There were two major people groups in that day, according to kind of the biblical framework. They were the Jewish people, and they were God's chosen people that he had set apart 2,000 years earlier to be his special people, to be his unique family, to belong to him. And then there was everybody else, the Gentiles. The Ephesians are part of the everybody else and, and, and it was long believed that the only ones who had any good coming from God were the Jewish people. The only ones that he really loved, the only ones that he wanted to be a part of his team and a part of his family were the Jewish people. And Paul says, no, no, no. That was not the design from the beginning. That was not God's ultimate plan. And he has made it known, he has made it seen that everyone who places their faith in Jesus. He says that there through faith in Him. Everyone who places their faith in Him may have, uh, may be marked now, he says, by the Holy Spirit. You will, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's a way of saying that you have been, um, it's not like a seal like you put on a jar to keep things fresh. It's like a seal that, like, uh, like a brand that you might put on Uh, a cow or something like that to mark it as belonging to you he says you have been marked and you now you Gentiles who, who weren't supposed to belong to him you belong to him now And He's given you His Holy Spirit to prove that, to mark you as His and as a down payment for what you're going to receive in the future. You can trust those things in Him. So here's the seven blessings. I don't know if you caught it. He mentioned at least seven specific blessings in this passage. I'm going to read them fast. You may not be able to write them all down. He says this, that those who are in Christ have been made holy and blameless. They've been, number two, adopted as sons and daughters. Number three, grace was richly poured out on us. Number four, we have been given redemption Redemption and forgiveness through Jesus' blood. Number five, he has made known to us the mystery of his plan. Number six, we have received an inheritance of eternal life. And number seven, we have been sealed with the third member of the Trinity himself, the Holy Spirit. But all of these things, if you read through that again, you will see that he does not say any one of those promises without adding these words in there, in Christ or in him or through Christ All of it finds its center in him. Paul knows this firsthand. He's experienced it, that God is a gracious God who pours out more blessings than we can hold, more blessings than we can ever get our hands around, and then God says, it's still not enough. I've got more for you. And he puts his big hands in, and he pours it all out, but all of it comes in Christ. But those words, in Christ, they don't just sum up what we get from God. They also sum up who you are. And that's what we're going to talk about in just a minute. But first, we'll take a quick break. Two, three minutes if you want to stretch your legs. Hot cocoa over here. There's a bathroom just inside to the right. Take a few minutes of stretch, and then we'll get back to it. All right. Okay, so from the time that you were a kid, you have received the same lame piece of advice over and over and over again. Your parents gave you this advice when you wanted to buy that like, stupid pair of jeans that cost a million dollars because all of your friends wanted to wear it too. Your teacher used to tell you this when she told you that you were special just the way that you were. Disney told you this over and over again. Your books told you this that you read in school. Cartoons told you this. Over and over and over again, you have heard this phrase, be yourself. Or, or maybe not exactly that phrase. You may have heard, uh, stay true to who you are. Uh, you may have heard, don't try to be something you're not. Or, or maybe you do you. Whatever you want to say, you've heard over and over again that you are to be who you really are. And, and here's the thing. I tend to hate... Um, cliched pop culture Disney advice I kind of want to roll my eyes when I hear that kind of stuff but, but if I'm going to be honest this, this advice really isn't as lame as I want to make it sound be yourself that's, that's actually really good advice to be who you are is one of the most important things that you could ever do here's my problem with this advice is that most people have no idea who that is when someone tells them, be who you really are, when they tell you, hey, don't, don't try to be something other than yourself, most people have no idea who they are, and they're trying to figure that out. Now, you might think that that is a problem reserved for high school and maybe college, like at this time in your life when you're trying to figure out just things like what do I want to do with my life and, and what major and everyone's asking me that and I, don't, I haven't even picked a major yet and, and you're trying to figure out who do I want to date and all those things and, and there's so many things in front of you and so many different options you can go. It can be really easy to just feel like I have no idea who I am or who I'm supposed to be. But I want to tell you, that if you're hoping that that question, that that problem ends when you graduate from college, you're going to be mistaken. Uh, this is something that runs all the way through life for many people. Look around at the uh, 40-year-old dude who's screaming at his son on the baseball field. Okay? He's not screaming because he's super passionate about sports. He's screaming because he's trying to find an identity and he's hoping maybe a dad of the superstar athlete might be that identity. Look around at the uh, mom who's always posting these cute pics on Instagram of her wonderful home and and all the artsy and craftsy things she's doing with her kids while also obsessively scrolling through to see what all the other moms are doing and you'll see that grown-ups don't know who they are yet. Look at all the dudes who go through weird midlife crises and buy uh, motorcycles when they're fifty, all of a sudden. And you'll see that people don't know who they are. That people will say things like, "I'm on a journey of self-discovery," or, or "Or I really need to spend some time just figuring out who I am." All of this speaks to this truth that no matter how much the world tells you to be yourself, there is always this little voice in the back of most people's minds and way down deep in their hearts that says, "I don't know." who that is. That's too bad because as I said knowing who you are is one of the most important things that you can do. And so this is a struggle. And this is a universal pursuit that most people are trying to figure out for themselves, who am I? What is my identity? Now when I use that word identity, what I mean is your your sense of self and your sense of worth. So, my identity is my sense of self, what makes me me, and my sense of worth, what makes me valuable, what makes me important, what makes me. Uh, my life worth having, my life worth existing. And, And most people in today's age, as they wrestle to figure those things out, tend to go one of three ways when they're trying to come up with an identity for themselves. Now, for much of human history, by the way, people didn't wrestle with this as much as we do today because you didn't really have options for much of human history. Your identity was primarily based in your family, your hometown, and your people group. Right, And there, there wasn't really, identity was community driven. But now we live in a day where the individual is key and we've got so many options in front of us. And, and so people are left struggling and trying to figure those things out. And so there are one of three ways that most people try to accomplish that. The first one is this, they try to earn it. This is probably the most common and the most simple way of finding an identity. That is to say that I can create an identity through the things that I accomplish or through the positions or titles that I gain that I can work hard enough, that I, can, that I can be awesome enough at these things, that I can be known as something, that I will be seen as the smart one. Or I can, I can be the successful one, or I can be the boss. I can be the one that everyone looks to and answers to. Or, or maybe in my friend group, I'm, I'm the funny one. As long as I've always got something witty to say, as long as, long as I'm already kind of always ready with a joke in the life of the party. Some people are looking for uh, an identity that comes with letters at the end of their name PhD. I work hard enough. I work long enough. I will have that. Or influencer. Or super mom. But here's the thing about this kind of identity, the kind that you earn, it's exhausting. It wears you out because it depends on me accomplishing all these goals that are set out before me. And once I accomplish them, that's not it. That's, it's, it's not done yet. I now have to spend my life clinging to and maintaining that identity at all costs, whatever it, will, whatever it may cost me to do. I must continue towards those. And, and a person with this kind of identity, you can usually spot them because they're easily threatened by others who might be better than them might be smarter than them because, you know, if that guy's smarter than me, then I'm no longer the smart one. If she's prettier than me, then I'm no longer the pretty one. If he's funnier than me, then I might, if this person rises faster amongst the ranks, if this person is more successful, and so this is an exhausting way of trying to find your identity, and you will constantly be working, and then one day the thing that you have aimed for all your life to be super successful in your job, you're going to retire, and you won't know who you are anymore to be the really incredible mom, to be the really great dad who's super involved and then your kids are going to go away to college and you won't know who you are anymore because you spent your life chasing after something that you cannot hold on to no matter how hard you might try. So The second way that people try to gain an identity is by attaching it to a group. This is probably the most common for young people. And that is that I could derive my identity from a group that I place myself in. In high school, it may have been uh, different cliques or different kind of groups that you hung out with. And that's who I, I might not know exactly who I am, but if I can hang out with these people, then I get to be just kind of part of that collective identity. I was talking actually with Andy a little bit today about this, that for a lot of people, and, and, and if, you're, if you're in a fraternity or sorority, I'm not taking a shot at you. I'm, this, is, this is kind of a, a real thing, that for a lot of people, they don't get in fraternities or sororities for uh, necessarily just the social things. And a lot of people, you know, the, the stereotype is like the party lifestyle. A lot of people aren't getting in, and it's a party. They're getting into it because, uh, because there is a collective identity to be found in that. I've found my people. I don't want to go away, go away to college and not have my people. I'm leaving them all in high school, so how am I going to find that then? But, but this is not just a young person thing. Many people will attach their identity to a group when it comes to politics as they get older. And their political ideologies or their belief systems will be what they push themselves around or even things like their NFL team and the fact that they are a fan of this and they will kind of build an identity out of being a part of that group. This kind of identity, though, is a problem because it's fragile. The first one is exhausting. This, this one is fragile because it depends on the group's approval of me which at any moment might give out if I say the wrong thing, if I do the wrong thing, if I offend the wrong people, or if the group and its collective identity begins to change, then I've got to be able to change with it. Otherwise, I might lose them. And therefore, I lose who I am. So there's a third way that a lot of people will try to find their identity, This and that is that they, would, they seek to discover it within themselves. This one feels the most legit. This one feels the most real because I'm not just trying to put something together. I'm trying to like go deep down and listen to my, my inner desires, my inner wants, my inner longings and figure out who I am because of that. I'm, I'm just searching inside and letting the true me come out. But this way, if the first one is exhausting and the next one is fragile, this way is elusive and it is the most unstable of all of them. And the reason why is because we're unstable. Because we are constantly changing. And so if I look inside of myself to figure out who I am, I'm not going to know who I am in five years. Do you remember what you were like when you were 13? Yeah. Do you remember what you thought was cool when you were 13? Do you remember the way you dressed and the things that were important to you? You can look back on yourself now and realize, as you look, many of you look back on that and you, you get embarrassed thinking about it with regret and, and what an idiot I was, what a goofball I was, the things that I thought were so cool, the things that I thought were so important, the things that I kind of made my life about when I was 13 seem so ridiculous. You want to know something kind of scary? 30-year-old you is going to think the same thing about 20-year-old you. When you're 30 years old, you're going to look back on yourself and go, man, the stuff that I thought was important, the stuff that I was making my life about. And when you're 40, you'll do the same thing as when you're 30. And what this means, what my favorite preacher likes to say, you realize what this means, right? If you thought you were an idiot when you were 13, you're right. But here's the truth. You're an idiot right now. To future you, you're an idiot. Okay? To 30-year-old you... This person right now that that you feel like is kind of somewhat trying to get it together, you're going to look back and go, what was I thinking? And that is the truth. So when you try to dig down deep inside of yourself and figure out who you are, you're going to be constantly chasing something that you can't figure out. It changes what you want. Oftentimes, I want two different things at the same time, and sometimes those things contradict. I cannot rely deep inside of here to figure out who I am. And when I do that, we talked about this last week, I spend my life looking inward and turning inward, which is not what you were made for. You were made in the image of a self-giving, outward-working God that moves out towards others in love. And if you spend your whole life looking deep inside of you so that you can be true to you and figure out who you are and you do you and you do all of those things, then you're working against what you were designed and made to be. The common denominator in all three of these approaches is that all of these identities are identities that are achieved by me that I work hard for. I must create them, I must maintain them, I must defend them from constant threats. This is why people get so mad when you disagree with them about politics or so angry and hurt when you criticize their work or the way they went about things because for those people, you are not just criticizing what I believe, you're not just criticizing what I do, you are taking shots at my very identity. I've wrapped myself up in those things. And these ways always depend on something, on me always chasing after them, always trying to work to make those things happen, to piece something together. But there is a fourth way. You knew there would be, right? There's a fourth way to gain an identity, and that is this. Let Jesus give you your identity. Let Jesus tell you who you are. As I said, Ephesians is written to a group of people who've never known what it means to belong to God. They weren't supposed to. That's what everyone thought. They weren't supposed to be his. They weren't supposed to be unique. They weren't supposed to be in on his family. And so now they have. Now they've placed their trust in Jesus. And the question for them is what does that mean for us? Like, who are we now? What kind of people are we becoming? Ephesians is written to answer that question. And that's why Paul starts where he does with these amazing blessings and this beautiful identity that we have in Jesus. Look back again at chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ for He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. So that is, that is identity right there. You are holy. You are blameless and loved. And then he predestined us to be adopted as sons, as daughters through Jesus Christ for himself according to his good pleasure. Holy, blameless, loved, son or daughter, that is who you are and that is a good identity. And here's the other really cool thing. This is what Tim Keller says. This identity is the only identity on the planet that is received and not achieved. That is, it's the only one that you don't have to spend all your life scrambling after and chasing, trying to piece something together. You don't have to fall apart when things don't work out the way you expected, when you don't get that job, when that boy doesn't like you, when you don't end up getting married. You don't have to fall apart because that's not what your identity was. And it doesn't matter if you fail in those things because the identity that you have is one that was given to you. It was received, not achieved. Don't you want that? You don't have to exhaust yourself trying to maintain it. You don't have to feel threatened that someone else might take it away. Is that not an anxious way to live? Is that not an exhausting, fragile way to live? So here's my encouragement to you tonight. Let's drop it. Let's drop all of the things that we have tied up our sense of self in, all of the things that you do, that you tie up your sense of self-worth in, and leave that aside. Listen, I, I know you were valedictorian in high school, but can I tell you something? It's not who you are. I, I know that you were the star athlete. I know that you were first chair in BAM, but can I tell you, that's not who you are. I know some of you got really big plans that you're going to climb the corporate ladder and you're going to be running, sitting at the top, running some Fortune 500 company today. But I'm just going to tell you, even if you succeed in that, that will not be who you are. Whether you ever become a super mom or whether you become an amazing plan on having kids and being super involved and only feed my kids organic food and do fun things with them, it doesn't matter if you do that. Whatever you achieve, doctor or professor or lawyer, that will not be who you are. And I know also this, that you, some of you, have done things before that you cannot forgive yourself for. I know that there are some of you in here um, who have done things that, that maybe some people know about and that has forever marked you in their eyes. That is now who you are and maybe nobody knows about it but you. But that's all that needs to know about it. And in your eyes you will always be that guy who did that thing. That girl who did that thing. Or, or maybe, maybe it wasn't something you did. Maybe it was something that somebody did to you and the scars that that left on you feel like something that you will never be able to shake, that it will always be intimately tied up into the person that you are. I want you to know this truth tonight. That's not who you are. You are daughter of the living God. You are son of the one true king. And if you're not yet, If you haven't actually made a decision to follow Jesus, then that that identity stands right here for you. It's yours for the taking tonight. And you you don't earn it, you can't. You couldn't as hard as you might try. It's not something you're ever gonna be able to earn. It's freely offered to you through Jesus Christ, through placing your faith in him and giving your life to him. When that happens, you become his, you become part of God's family. It is given to you. Uh, This one author, Brian Rosner, says this, The most significant question in understanding personal identity is not who am I, but whose am I? If you want to grasp your identity, we don't ask who am I, it's whose am I, and you are God's. You are in Christ. This semester, we're going to look at whose you are. We're going to look at what it means to be part of the family of God, to belong to him, and how that changes everything about your life. Well, I wanna give you just a few minutes tonight to reflect on a few things. We'll give you a couple minutes in silence, and I want you to ask this question and think through it in your head. Where are you most likely to try to find an identity outside of Jesus? Where are you? Is it, is it in your success? Is it in a relationship? Is it in, is it in a group that you're a part of? Where, where is it that you are most likely to try to f- build an identity for yourself or discover or create an identity for yourself? And how would life look different if you were able to rest in the identity that Jesus gave you? Just a couple minutes thinking about that and then maybe praying and asking God to help you in that. We'll, we'll take two minutes to do that and then we'll close.